welcome to this special bonus episode of Celebrity Catch-Up Life After That Thing I Did. If this is your first time here, I'm Genevieve and I've picked out some of my memorable moments from this past season 5 for you. As usual, there was a big dose of 80s, 90s and noughties nostalgia of the TV, film and music variety, while my guests reminisced and then talked about how their lives unfolded after that thing they did. First up is 80s pop icon Tiffany and a bit of behind the scenes insight for you. My chat with her was more than 18 months in the making. We were originally scheduled to record in April 2021 during season two, then it was rescheduled last July for season four and then we finally made it happen for season five. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. For me, I think We're Alone Now is one of my anthems of the 80s, but you weren't that keen on the song when you first heard it, were you? Well, I mean, I heard it, the Tommy uh, James and Shondell's version, and it was very children behave. And I was like, what is happening? (laughs) (laughs) It's not what I expected by any means. And I had never heard it before. If I did, I didn't recognize it at the time. And because my mom knew the song and of course my dad and my family, you know, but I didn't. And I was only 14 when I recorded it. And then I came back and, you know, my producer at the time was like, well, it's going to be different. So come back tomorrow and I'll have a track for you to pick up. And then I picked up the track and it was more like kind of a dance track. And at that time I had been working on material that was country, kind of rock, kind of Cheryl Crow, if you will. So kind of a meeting of the minds with all the different influences by the time I was 14 uh, that I had experienced and, you know, kind of were a part of me. So I was kind of hoping for something like that. And then we had this dance song. And that was my biggest fear was that people wouldn't know that I could sing. I mean, to be honest with you, I ended up being kind of right because it's taken me a lot of years to show that I'm not just one hit wonder and could have been, although number one as well, this massive ballad for some reason didn't get as much uh, notoriety, if you will. I think the fans loved it, but I think that, you know, by then the critics for some reason wanted to say, well, she's manufactured in this one. Hmm. Like this is not the same vocalist. So that's really, for some reason, it just got thrown to the side that I was just the girl that's saying, I think we're alone now, yeah. but there really was some more. So, you know, full circle now though, I love singing the song. It makes me happy. I'm so glad it worked out. You know, you never know. I, I mean, I obviously I was 14, so I'm glad that I took advice um, but now if there's something happy about that song, it just makes people feel good. Can you remember what you were doing the day you were told you had your first number one? I was washing dishes and doing my chores. Very glamorous. And my mom was going to be getting <laughs> home from work. Yes. And my manager called and he said, he said exactly that. What are you doing? I said, I'm washing dishes because you'll never have to wash dishes again. <laughs> and I said, Oh, okay. And he goes, your record just went number one. You're a number one artist. I went, oh, that's really cool. Okay. I was like, that's a great, you know, and I knew kind of what that meant a little bit. And he just kept talking and I said, you know, I have to let you go because my mom's going to be home here pretty soon. And I do have to have these done. He goes, okay, you're totally missing it. I go, no, you're missing it. If I get busted, I can't do any of this. So number one, <laughs> my mom will shut that down. Okay. So I got to go. <laughs> Let's do this first. <laughs> 
My first guest this season was Star Trek legend George Takei. He's such a great raconteur, I could listen to him talk all day. He had so many brilliant stories to tell and this was just one of them. Back while you were making the original Star Trek series, you grew really close to your castmates and every Friday evening you'd all go out to eat sushi. But what I really want to know is, does the burden of guilt for why Walter Koenig doesn't like sushi still weigh on your conscience? <laughs> <laughs> the first night, uh, I took just Jimmy Doohan and uh, we drove down the Hollywood freeway to Little Tokyo and we sat at the sushi bar. And Jimmy, I, I told him, uh, you want to go to a sushi bar? And he said, Gesundheit. <laughs> Uh, when I said sushi, he, he thought <laughs> he was making a joke of it, of course. But he said, a bar. Oh, good. Let's go. It was the idea of eating at a bar that uh, uh, intrigued him. And uh, I introduced him to sushi. I started him off with a, a very, I thought for him, uh, easy introduction, uh, tuna, which looks like beef. And it, it is, raw fish is delicious. I love it. And uh, he took his first bite. He loved it. And he says, what's that orange one? That's uh, salmon. Well, let's have another one. He loved that. He, in fact, he loved the whole thing. And the next morning, he was raving about it to everyone. In fact, the way he described it was almost sexual. <laughs> he said, you put it in your mouth. And you run your tongue over the flesh, the meat, and you bite into it. And the delectable flavor that just fills your mouth. And so they all be became curious and they said they all wanted to go. And so I, I said, we can't uh, go during the week because uh, it also comes with libation. And you can have wine, but uh, what's really uh, the appropriate drink is sake. Yeah. And so you have sake with a sushi. And so that Friday night after work, we had a caravan of cars going down the Hollywood freeway. And uh, because Jimmy Doohan had, had educated most of the people that went down, they um, sat with Jimmy on that end of the bar. But Walter was very insecure. He, he says, I, I, I don't even eat uh, raw beef and raw fish. Uh, I'll, I'll stick with you. And Walter was right next to me. And I thought I'd start him off easy as well with tuna. So the sushi maker made a pair of tuna uh, sushis and placed it in front of him. He picked it up. He said, I couldn't, I can't use chopsticks. I said, it's all right. Uh, you're not Japanese. You're entitled to pick it up with your fingers. And uh, you can dip it into uh, a little bit of soy sauce. And then you bite into it. And he sank his teeth into it. And suddenly his eyes popped open and his nose snots shot out. <laughs> he had this look of shock. I forgot to tell him about the wasabi. <laughs> it's that hot green mustard that's tucked underneath a slice of raw tuna. And he got his napkin and he immediately spat out what he had in his mouthful, and he started hacking, and his eyes watered, nose was was running, and his wax almost popped out of his ears. <laughs> and and he, uh, that was the last of Walter and Sushi. He never joined us in our subsequent 
treks down to Little Tokyo. The others all loved it. Major Major Barrett loved it. Michelle loved it. <laughs> so our uh, caravan down to Little Tokyo on Friday nights was minus Walter Koenig. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel bad still there? <laughs> I don't because the, that poor guy, he has his own fallibilities. Uh, it, it really wasn't my fault. He he doesn't like hot, spicy things, and I forgot to tell him about it. <laughs> In fact, I should have ordered the uh, uh, tuna sushi without the wasabi. I'll let you off then. <laughs> Another great storyteller is Andre Royo, who, of course, famously played Bubbles on what's considered to be one of the best TV dramas of all time, The Wire. A character he played so convincingly, people thought he was a real drug addict. You did go kind of quite method being Bubbles rather than being out partying with the rest of the cast. You you isolated yourself a bit for the first couple of years. You lived in a one-bedroom apartment with just a mattress. And, and famously, yeah. there's stories about security kicking you off set because they thought you were actually homeless and you were given drugs by someone as you were so convincing looking as an addict. And was it Mark Wahlberg who thought you were actually a junkie when you met him? Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. A few people. A few people. And I hope I don't get people in trouble. Because it, it was like a backhanded compliment because it wasn't like it was negative. But a few people thought I was, when I was on set, you know, I stayed in character as much as I could because I, it, talking to all those people, they wanted me to get it right. They were like, please get this right. This is not, you know, get it right. And so I was, I felt like I have to stay as much as I can in character so that I don't have to go back and forth and I might lose focus. So I tried to stay in character as much as I could. And... Great hair and makeup, you know, <laughs> and you know, I people thought I was a real junkie, and I, I think I met Mark Wahlberg early, and maybe after the first two seasons at an HBO party, and you know, a lot of people because David Simon and The Wire was known as this authentic show, and we were getting people off the street, and nobody had really seen me as an actor because I'm doing theater or I'm doing extra work in Law and Order, you know, so nobody really knew me as an actor. So they just assumed that I was somebody they found in Baltimore and gave him a shot. So, you know, Mark Wahlberg, I think he was at a, the food line and Mark Wahlberg came up to me and was like, I love the show. You're doing a great job, man. Keep up the good work. Right. Like stay off the stuff. You make a career out of this. And I was just like, what, what, what are you talking about, man? I'm not a, I'm not an addict real. And he was shocked. He was shocked. And he said, great, you know, he said even greater things after that, you know, so still to this day, you know, I, I was laughing because I used to drive this Yaris. I used to like this Yaris and I drive this Yaris around and, you know, if I parked this Yaris in front of the, you know, Chateau Marmont and come out, people were just like, yo, he must really be on, like, he must be, he spent all of his money. He must be doing drugs real. Like, you know, people still... I don't know if they believe it as much as they want to believe it. Like when The Wire was over and I came to L.A. or third season, when third season was over and I came to L.A., a lot of agents and, and, and PR people were telling me that the audience would rather believe that Bubbles is now becoming an actor than an actor is playing Bubbles. So they wanted me to really go with that, run with it, run with the I was an addict and now I'm an actor. And they thought it'd be, it would it would further my career quicker if the world just believed that Bubbles is now starting an acting career. And I couldn't do that because that's not my history. And I thought that'd be insulting 
to people who are really dealing with it. And it'd be insulting to my mom and dad who were like, what the fuck you talking about? He's not, he's not. My mom was <laughs> livid. When I got the part, and I told my mom, you know, I got this part, I'm playing this junkie. And Ed Burns told me that the real Reginald Cousins, real Bubbles, was like six foot. If I said no, if I said no, I didn't want this part for whatever reason, the, the person playing Lieutenant Daniels, Lance Reddick, would have got it. Was going to get it. Yeah. You would have got it. And he, they said he looked more like Bubbles. So when I asked Ed Burns, I said, if that's what Bubbles looked like, why'd you cast me? He said, because I had more of the essence of who Bubbles was. Mm-hmm. And my mother was like, fuck is he talking about? My son ain't got no essence or no. <laughs> my mom went off. And I'm like, no, it's a good thing, mom. So, yeah. I've always been a big Wes Craven fan, so I was so excited when Rose McGowan agreed to come on the show and reminisce about making the film that revamped the horror genre, Scream. Here she is talking about her iconic death scene in the movie where she met an unfortunate end with a garage door. Let's talk about your iconic death scene where you met an unfortunate end with a garage door because you did all your own stunts, didn't you? So could you um, break it down and talk me through the making of that sequence? I'm sure there's some stunt part that I didn't do, but I don't remember what it would be. The stunt girl was quite a bit bigger than I was. Um, Her legs were bigger. And I just realized that that was going to look, there's no way that people would believe that this was me. So I went up and down in that garage door I fit through the doggy door, so they had to nail my shirt into one side so I wouldn't pop out. And it was very cold in there, and I didn't know that. It, I mean, I knew it was cold, but I didn't know it was registering as a cold uh, thing on my chest, so to speak. So that became kind of an iconic part of it. Oy vey. Smuggling peanuts, as we would say in the UK. <laughs> yeah, they say raisins in the US, but essentially the same thing. <laughs> what are you smuggling raisins? And it was very cold. And it was just a lot of action. I love action. I love doing stunts. And I always love doing the physical and kind of proving that you're not just this soft actress. What was the, uh, was it a cast made of your head for your dead dummy? And then that was the thing that got crushed in the door. Yes, exactly. And they did the makeup on the my death face right behind me while I was getting my makeup done in the makeup trailer. And it was just... They had done such a good job on the cast and the the fear in the eyes was really creepy. And uh, there's a lot of unique experiences you have when you film movies that you can't really explain to other people. And that having your dead face being made up behind you as you're being made up is definitely one of them. (laughs) I was incredibly fortunate to have the godfather of TV talk shows, Jerry Springer, guest this season. I was so sad when just a couple of weeks after his episode went out, he passed away and my chat with him was to be his last broadcast interview. I'll speak more about Jerry a little later, but here he is talking about the most infamous episode of his chat show. As you say, the the show did shine a spotlight on the more outrageous or or scandalous stories. And I'll, I'll mention just a few memorable show titles from the 90s like they stole my husband's eyes. I woke up in a morgue. Um, I cut off my manhood. I cut off my legs. The infamous, I married a horse. Uh, I slept with 251 men in 10 hours. Adult babies. Did you really not know what was coming up on each show and you were just winging it every episode? Yes, but that's easier. In other words, I had nothing to do with who was a guest, what the subjects were. And I didn't want to know what the show was about 
because then my reaction would be fake. Mm. In other words, I was the viewer at home. In all the craziness, I was always dressed in a suit. I never curse. You know, I never got involved in the fights. You know, I'm the viewer. I asked the question that you would ask sitting at home watching and then make a joke. So really, I was paid to tell jokes about what was going on. And it'd be much more spontaneous and real, as I said, because I'm not an actor, if I really didn't know, if I was surprised. And one of the shows you mentioned, you know, the infamous I Married My Horse, the backstory to that was, you know, again, I didn't know. All they do is give me the card that you see me carrying around, but all the card has on it are the names of the guests. So one, two, three, four. And let's say the guy's name was Bob. I honestly don't remember. So the show starts like every other. If you'll notice in every show, I start out by saying, so what's going on? So now the guy's sitting there and let's say his name was Bob. Bob's sitting in a chair on stage. I say, welcome, Bob. Uh, What's going on? And he sits there. He's about 45 years old, something like that. And he says, well, um, I'm having trouble with the neighbors. Uh, Why? They don't like my wife. Well, what's wrong with your wife? Nothing. She keeps to herself. She's quiet. Never starts arguments. Well, this is kind of boring. So I look at the next guest. The next guest is Pixel. Well, let's meet your wife. Here's Pixel. Out comes this horse. (laughs) The crowd goes wild. But I have the reaction that any normal person I think would have. Oh, my gosh. His wife has fallen off the horse that for some reason she was going to take, ride the horse out there, you know? So I say, stop. And then the executive producer is yelling at me at the side. No, no, that's his wife. <laughs> and, and then of course, uh, the audience just went crazy. And the, the end of the story is, you know, we did a follow-up. The horse, uh, Pixel left him. Ugh. But it was, yeah, yeah, I know. But it was really weird. Of course it was weird, but <laughs> Bob is sitting in the chair and every time I was standing between Bob and Pixel, Pixel would nudge me out of the way. Pixel wanted to see Bob's face all the time. Never go between a woman and a man. <laughs> yes, it was love. Once again this series, my guests have been incredibly open in sharing stories from difficult times in their lives. Jonathan Lipnicki, who rose to fame in the Tom Cruise film Jerry Maguire and then Stuart Little, was super honest about his struggle transitioning from a child star to an adult one, while Pop Princesses Bewitched spoke about their challenges after being dropped by their record label. First, though, is Paul Potts, the very first winner of Britain's Got Talent, who talked about how he dealt with the press backlash he suffered once he came into the public eye. So after your audition was broadcast, media interest in you just blew up, not just here in England, but around the world. And you had a bit of a baptism of fire being thrown into masses of interviews. And just before the final, in typical fashion, where the press start off by building you up and then tear you down. (laughs) Um, I remember the press got really mean and turned on you saying that you'd misled everyone and you were actually a professional opera singer. How did that make you feel at the time? And how did you handle all that initial press hoopla? Um, well, I was really underprepared for it all. I mean, I, I, I mean, I've been a local councillor, but that's not quite the same as having national press weighing for blood, basically, and then spending an hour on the phone with you when they'd been told they'd get fifteen minutes. Of course, there was nobody, nobody there on the line to help me with that. I had to just take the call and deal with it. Mm. But 
I mean, I think the show isn't just for amateurs anyway. I know that's kind of the, the scripted perfection, but you wouldn't have an untrained person throwing knives around. That would be considered dangerous. Um, so, you know, I don't see what the issue is with having training. But I wasn't a professional. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd actually stopped because I couldn't afford to keep performing. But I don't see what the issue is with, with professionals performing anyway. It's, you know, you, it's like I say, you, you wouldn't allow somebody that had never been trained to throw knives to do it unless they had experience. Mm. And so, you know, for some reason with singers, it's considered different. Um, I mean, I remember in Germany, there was um, there's a magazine called Der Spiegel. And I, I'd done an interview in Berlin and it was a, it was meant to have been a 20-minute interview, a quick little slot in, in in the Sunday magazine and about dreams. And in the end, I ended up talking about Wittgenstein and Descartes and, and, and Kant. And basically, I spent an hour and a half talking about philosophy. And it ended up being the lead the lead part in pressing Die Welt. And, and then Der Spiegel came out and said that I misled everybody because I wasn't as stupid as they thought I was. Huh. And I thought, well, I'll calculate that a minute. And, I, and they did get criticism for them that I had to deal with in an interview. I said, well, why is it my fault that you made a first judgment about me? Which is fine. Everybody makes, you know, people always make, I take a first impression. You know, that's the reason why our parents told us to dress well. And because, you know, you only get a, one chance to make a first impression. Which is why I was so scruffy all the time. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, people make a judgment about you. It's not. And my, the point I made was that it's not my fault that you made a judgment that was wrong. You made a judgment that I was stupid from the way I, I clumsily and unconfidently walked on the stage. You made the judgment that I wasn't intelligent. I never told anybody that it was thick. Neither did the programme. Nobody was told that I was thick. You drew your own conclusions from what you saw. Mm. Why is it my fault that you made the false judgment? That's not my fault. I didn't tell you I was stupid. I never, I never held any of that back. I've talked about it before on the podcast with other singers and bands about the cliche that is the difficult second album, but I don't really think that was the case with you. Um, the first track, Jesse Hold On, went to number four here in the UK and the next two songs were top 20 and the album went platinum. And it must be incredible pressure because after four consecutive number ones, the only way is down, really, after that, if you can't sustain it. And mm -hmm. <laughs> we see time and time again that record companies just throw talent away when they feel like they're not going to make the money anymore. And that's what happened with you when Sony dropped you just before you were about to release your third album in 2001. Yeah. That phone call must have been a real bolt out of the blue for you. Well, it's weird, right? Because when you, when I look back on it now, it's not only that we were dropped um, because they didn't think we were going to make enough money. It was like the record industry was actually, they were all merging at the time and it was all getting smaller. Mm. The record companies were huge and there were so many lit literally different legs off every record company. Then suddenly they were all becoming the one big company and even those companies were merging together. So we were just caught in that storm and then suddenly we were nobody's baby and nobody really kind of, nobody was really behind us and really wanting Bewitched to do something bigger, which is how we ended up dropped. But, um, you know, that initial phone call, my gosh, it was, it was, it was awful. Like the rug being pulled onto you just like that, you know, within minutes. I had a little bit of an inkling. I don't know why, but I felt like I had this sixth sense that it was coming anyway. Even though we had, we had the first single, Where Will You Go, written on the third album. We had it recorded and we were waiting to go to South Africa to make the video. The video crew had gone ahead to South Africa to recce the venues and stuff. And we were just to get a call to follow them. And instead we got this call in, in its place. 
myself and Kiwi were in America at my sister's and we just had this phone call and our manager Derek at the time was like okay well you know it's done actually Sony are like pulling the plug and I knew what it meant straight away and I was like oh sugar like and then Kiwi just couldn't fathom what I was saying I was like it's done it's over we're like we're done like and she was like what do you mean what's done like like as in the video recce is done and we're going or like what are you talking about um and it was really weird really weird to compute I mean where do you put that we had our where our whole lives kind of always planned out ahead for us our schedule was done by other people we never had to think for ourselves even for the past kind of x amount of years and suddenly now within one phone call you had to think completely for yourself yeah and change path and it was really really difficult there's something um that a lot of performers experience you probably know about it but for everybody else um whether the actor singers or dancers and it's the, the so-called glitter crash or the post-performance depression yeah. that comes after you've had an intense period of work mm. and you have all this adrenaline and dopamine running through your body from the buzz of being on stage or filming and then when it ends even if it's just after the end of your tour or you finish work on a production you're hit with this sort of come down and you struggle to cope that feeling must have been a million times magnified for you all when you're in a massive pop group and then suddenly you're not there's no more group yeah it was kind of it was kind of a little bit strange because six months prior a bit like what Edel was saying the the kind of inkling of knowing that something was happened things had slowed down a little bit like we were just busy writing so for six months previous to we weren't like on tour we weren't doing loads of promo we were kind of I was in home in Ireland Edel you were in Ireland as well weren't you You'd bought the, your apartments and stuff. God, had I at that point? Yeah, maybe actually. Yeah. So we were kind of, there was a little bit of normality of life kind of happening around us. So I think that definitely the performance side of it, like that craving of, you know, getting on stage and doing that to audiences, that was the hardest bit. Not realising that you weren't going to do that again. Even going to gigs, we found really difficult. We didn't really want to go and watch anybody on stage or, you know, it was... Um, you probably have envy at that point like why are they doing it and I can't definitely yeah you do, you do and it's just like oh my god we're never going to do that again that's it was really sad I couldn't look at any of my um discs or all my scrapbooks or anything like that I found that hard sometimes you kind of put them in a box and then just put them away and then you know a few years later you're kind of rummaging through stuff going oh my god um you do kind of put it to one side, but I was a bit older and I kind of was in a stage where I wanted to kind of get married and settle down. So my focus just kind of switched a little bit as well. So I kind of liked the fact that there was a little bit of normality coming back into my life and it wasn't just crazy. It's mad. You know what I think is mad when, when we talk about this and look back is like, because the record company dropped us, we just disappeared. So, I mean, we did a, we did a last tour in America. We headlined a tour in America after we were dropped, yeah. which is absolutely insane when you think about it. But then we also let that happen. We allowed them because they were always the boss of everything and not saying that in a negative way, but they did the schedule and they did everything and they told us what was going on. We didn't realize that actually we could have taken that power ourselves. There was no reason why we couldn't carry on gigging ourselves or like putting on a tour in the UK when we came back in all books. No reason, yeah. We didn't. Somebody went, you're dropped and we thought it was all ended. Totally. But it's like, we're reflecting on that. It was like, no, one element of that ended, but we allowed it to be the end of all of it, which is so weird. I know. But then there was nobody in the wings. There was nobody telling us, actually, yeah, you have been dropped, but you can still do this and you can still do that. We could have done everything, anything. A bit like <laughs> what we're doing today. You know, we've been gigging for the last 10 years. So it's yeah, like, exactly. we could have been doing it, but. But we didn't. It's so weird. And I think it's just because you're so busy and so caught up in working every minute of every day. 
you don't have that kind of thinking forward head to plan out where exactly everything could possibly go. Yeah. And then also, I guess you have to deal with that grief and there's a period of time attached yeah. to that, isn't it? Yeah, totally. If we pick up at 2004 to 2010, you didn't work too much professionally during that time with just a handful of credits. But since 2010, you've worked consistently every year, either on stage or on screen. But that seven year period in between wasn't the easiest for you, was it? Uh, no, it's funny. It got taken out of context a little when I explained this a few months ago. And actually, funny, I've been saying it for a long time, but sometimes things pick up. And so there was a fair amount of press because I, I talked about how I didn't get a lot of roles during that period because I, I wasn't very good at acting. And what I mean by that, um, to be very specific, is they ended up saying in the interviews when I said a little blurb about it, oh, he quit acting. I never quit acting. I was still auditioning, just not it wasn't my only focus. I was going to high school, especially, um, you know, was really interested in playing water polo. So I played water polo. I had a very um, normal time for high school. I mean, I went to public school, elementary, middle and high school, but high school, you know, it was the most consistent that I was in class. And um, it was a very normal experience on the acting front. I didn't quit at all. I still auditioned, you know, when it when it came up, I was a very awkward age. So there's not, you know, a tremendous amount for kids that age in general. You know, when you get in that like tween, preteenish house, it looks very young. So um, it's not like I played the 18 and above roles or anything like that. You know, even at 16, I didn't look 16. So besides that, what the real crux of the situation was, was I wasn't a good actor. And what I mean by that was I didn't love myself. When I visualize anything, I want to be anybody in the world but me at that point. I, I didn't like who I was. I had some difficulties in school. I wasn't confident in who I was. And much like any kid going through puberty, like I felt awful, you know, mm. I, I was really uh, awkward and not confident. And when that happens as an actor, you lose the most important thing sometime. And that's being, you know, bringing yourself to the role. So I admired these people like Leo and Johnny Depp back then. And, and, and you know, those, those are the people I was looking up to. I would almost imitate other actors because I thought it was like I wanted to be them doing it. And when you are imitating or or not, you know, actually having something truthfully come from you, then you lose what is extremely special about yourself and about acting. So I wasn't a good actor. I was just not good. And what happened after 2010 was acting class, going to a beginning acting class, really taking it from the beginning. I knew, you know, I got by a lot on on not doing um, really any classes for, for several years. And I knew there was at some point, you know, in the transition I was making, I knew I knew classes and really being able to marry that natural talent with the skill set was important. And I became uh, really studious at, at 18. I decided to not go to college after I didn't get into the film school I wanted. I was like, you know, let me see what happens with acting for the next year and see, you know, um, see, see what happens. And at the end of the year, uh, after studying really hard in acting class, I booked a movie and I was like, I think this is a sign to keep doing it. And um I've been doing it consistently since then through thick and thin. And um, it's been a wonderful, scary, sad, happy, crazy, boring, exciting, you know, experience. You know, it's, it's you really run the full gamut of emotions when you're in an industry where you don't have a lot of control over what happens. And people are like, oh, what's your dream role or that? And, you know, I, I have several things that would be a dream role. I, I don't have control over that. I'm still you know, very much like most actors, 99% of them re reading for roles, auditioning and getting what I, I book, mm. you know, and, and it's been, it's been a wild experience, but I, I wouldn't change it for the world. Mm. 
Regular listeners will know that I like to talk to my guests about some of the more little-known facts about them. Here's Eurovision legends Bucks Fizz, or The Fizz as they're now known, followed by Jonathan again. My favourite fact about the group is that you recorded What's Love Got To Do With It? And it was intended to be on your fourth album, but then it had to be shelved because this little person called Tina Turner released her version <laughs> first. What a shame. Well, well, if I'm absolutely honest, I think I prefer Tina Turner's version. <laughs> yeah. But yes, isn't it funny? She made the version that was like the original demo. And somehow through a friend of mine, I heard the original demo before we even recorded it. And obviously before she did. So ours was really different. And we had a different producer. And, well, Cheryl, you need to tell the story about what he said. Oh, it was a blimmin awful, absolutely awful. We got into the studio. The, the guy was Chris Power, wasn't it? Wasn't it Chris Power? Yeah. And we went into the studio and he said, uh, well, I've got this song. He said, that obviously, it's a male vocal. It's been written for a male vocal. And so he told me and Jay to sit down and he recorded Mike and Bobby, in particular Bobby, and then it was like, oh, the girls are here. Oh, I suppose I better put a bit of oohs and ahs on. It was awful. awful. I wanted to walk out. I wanted to smack him. Yeah. It was absolutely dreadful, honestly. It was he was so condescending. Yeah. And the fact that, obviously, this is a male vocal. Oh, and then Tina Turner comes up and, you know, and blows the whole... Smashes it. It's huge. Yeah. It was so much cooler... But the fact that it was sung by a woman was so much cooler and of the day yeah. and edgy. I mean, yeah. It was so normal the way he did it, but the production he did was terribly 80s, in, in a, not in a good way. <laughs> no, not in a good way. And it, it didn't even make the cut in the end, did it? You know. The nice thing is that when we got back together after so many years, I think 23 years when Jay wasn't in the band and then she came back in together with us, for the first tour that we did, Jay and I sang What's Love Got To Do With It on that tour. Oh. And we could actually say, we did this before Tina Turner. And the Tina Turner biopic, she mentions that, doesn't she, on, on the film that yeah. fucks Fizz. Not in, a, not in a very pleasant way, but even so, nice to get mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> and then following Stuart Little was The Little Vampire in 2000, your first leading role. And again, an awesome cast for you. Richard E. Grant, Alice Creed, Jim Carver from Downton Abbey. Uh, and filming was delayed twice directly because of you. Can you share why? And I'll, oh, my God. All oh my fault. And I'll warn people, if you're slightly squeamish, you might want to prepare yourself. It's uh, it's all my fault. Uh, one was injuring my back. So I lost a bit of weight in uh, Germany. I don't know if I was just nervous or the food. You know, there was also a degree of I've always had a sense of stomach. A lot of food didn't agree with me. That I was eating out there and I lost a lot of weight and I didn't fit into my flying harness properly. You know, we had kept having to readjust for that and I ended up overextending some parts of my back and my neck and um, it got really bad. I pulled something and I was out for two, I think two weeks and that was pretty miserable. And then the other accident was kind of a freak accident. Uh, so my dear dog, rest in peace, Edgar, Edgar Lipnicki, me and him were playing around one day. And his mouth was open because he was panting and we were all just playing around. You know, I was like wrestling with him. I was a little kid and my lip went straight into one of his teeth and it cut my lip open completely. Wow. And I had to go and get that sewn up and let that heal. And that was an experience, too, because I'm young. I'm going to a surgeon who didn't speak English. We were in Germany. And so I was like, didn't know what was going on. And it was kind of terrifying. Um, we had one of the producers who spoke both German and English go with us. But I was like, I was terrified. It was it was a pretty deep gash. And when I moved my mouth, it would like, sorry if this gross ever, 
but it would move as well. It would kind of flap open. It was disgusting. You could see it into my lip. My poor buddy Edgar, he felt so bad. He wouldn't leave my side for weeks on end after that. Amazing dog. Totally just a weird, weird accident. Usually after talking about that thing they did, my guests tend to share some of the more wacky things they've done during their career since. Here's Cheryl Baker of The Fizz again, followed by George Takei. In tandem with the music career, you of course had started a TV career and you presented two shows that I loved watching growing up, Eggs and Baker on a Saturday morning. Mm. I don't remember there being any cookery shows for kids at that time at all, so I loved that. That's why we did it. And, um, and, re- <laughs> and record breakers alongside the legend that was Rory Castle. And mm. you broke quite a few records on the show, but the one that caught my eye, which was done on TVAM, was your attempt to break the record for the longest on-screen kiss, which you successfully no. did with Giles Brandreth <laughs> for three and a half minutes. Was that a hard day at work? Oh, I tell you what, it was a hard day at work because he'd just drunk a cup of coffee just before hand so I had this coffee taste straight away and then he burped oh my god <laughs> it was really unpleasant it was so unpleasant oh, no. honestly and I was like a stuffed doll I was refusing to move I'm just thinking let this be quick let this be quick but because I wasn't moving because we had the the show was going on and we were in a little box in the corner on the screen so that people could see that we were still kissing and so he started running his hands through my hair to show that we were still you know alive and kissing it was the most unpleasant I love Giles Bradworth I really do I think he's a fantastic broadcaster writer and a really lovely man but he's not the best kisser in the world (laughs) was that the longest three and a half minutes of your life I know why I did it because we'd had all the success with Bucks Fizz but we weren't making successful singles anymore. And so our gigs were kind of getting smaller and smaller, less and less. And I was doing TV, but there was, I don't know, a hiatus in the TV presenting thing. And Jill Shirley was our manager and my manager as a personal, like as a TV presenter. And she went, Cheryl, we need to up your profile. We need to get you some TV. And she got me that. (laughs) We think that you should break the world record for the longest on-screen kiss. That'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) But Giles Brandreth, why couldn't they pick Paul Young or someone, you know, (laughs) Simon Le Bon? Well, Giles. Charles Brandon. The thing that I love was that Patsy Kensett was also guesting that day and she looked just totally bemused by the whole thing that was going on, even suggesting that maybe some tongue should be used. Oh, no. <laughs> Spice oh. it up. Oh, my God. I'm never going to get that out of my memory now. <laughs> you appeared in one of our great... British TV shows I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here where the great British public voted you through to the final and you finished in third place behind Martina Navratilova and Joe Swash who you had a lovely bromance with Um, and as well as jumping out of a plane at 71 years of age you were behind what I think is still one of the funniest moments of television where you ate or rather struggled to eat a kangaroo's penis. <laughs> and I don't know if you remember what you said after you choked a bit after. Only you could deliver that line. I don't remember what I said, but I remember that process. You said, I think the penis is rebelling. <laughs> <laughs> 
it, or it's it, getting an erection. <laughs> <laughs> I probably said that. I cannot swallow this one. <laughs> it's on YouTube. People need to watch it. It's brilliant. <laughs> but it it's, it's like leather. I mean, you would think that, you know, there'd be some give to it. But I kept chomping on it and chomping on it. It got to be really boring. In fact, they stopped the camera <laughs> because they could take so much of you know, I could only I just, take chewing on a penis for so long. <laughs> for so long, and then uh, so they stopped the camera and they said, uh, "Take it out of your mouth and tear at it so that it's in chewable pieces." And so I did that, and I chewed some more, and it felt like another five minutes of chewing, but <laughs> I was finally able to swallow it. It is uh, most tasteless. It has no taste, really. It's like chewing on leather. That's dried up and totally tasteless, but I was able to swallow that. It was an experience. <laughs> <laughs> you were defeated in the end by a camel testicle. Uh, but... <laughs> was that what it was? <laughs> As you've probably gathered by now, we do have lots of laughs on the pod and this season was no exception. Here are a few more moments that stuck in my memory from Paul Potts, Bewitched and Andre Royo. You got such an amazing response from the audience and, and the judges and Piers Morgan said at the time, you know, you were going to be the favourite to win this, but you weren't happy with your performance. I guess that's like the perfectionist in you, isn't it, coming out that, you know, well, I didn't quite hit that note properly. Yeah, I'm, I'm always like that. I'm still like that now. It's, it can be productive for working on things, but it can be quite destructive as well. I'm really not very good at, I'm really good at giving myself a hard time and I don't quite get certain notes in the right places. So sometimes then I overthink things and the next performance gets affected by that because last time this happened and you're thinking that. And the, the trouble is the more you think in performance, the the worse often you perform because thinking creates tension and and you're not feeling it. And that's and that's one of the reasons why I'm and it frustrates my wife that I get ready literally just before I walk on stage because I it gives me less time to think. Mm. I've literally been in a situation on a German TV show once called um folks folks music. And I wa- I walked on and I thought mm, I forgot what the first line was. And it makes me laugh now because um, the first line was the title of the piece. Yeah, I forgot it. <laughs> uh, and, that's, that's, and, that's, and that's the danger of thinking. I've stood on stage with a 50-piece orchestra behind me doing a 12-minute um, medley of Mario Lancer songs and thinking, what's the first line? And I, and I had to tell myself to stop thinking because otherwise I wasn't going to find it. And, and I stopped thinking and I was fine. But, but that's the danger. It's if you, if you think too much. And then sometimes it it can it can actually hold you back quite a lot. You start writing the first lines for your songs on your hands so that you can. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that. I've done that. I've held I've held little pieces of paper. And sometimes I'm just, as I get older, things are a little more difficult to memorize. So I, I, I sometimes have a music stand with a with an iPad on, and the the, the the only thing with the iPad is it doesn't shine the lights reflected back. You know, when you use one of these folders with the plastic liners, you put the A4 pages in. You know, they, they reflect the light, and sometimes you're squinting at it, which makes you look even older. <laughs> <laughs> you had your own merch and there were some bewitched dolls oh Adele, I saw one of your dolls that sings roller coaster on eBay yesterday for anyone interested it's new oh, wow. in its original box and it's yours for £25 oh. and another £25 postage to get it here from the US if you're in the UK oh. do, do you still have any of your dolls? 
I think Kiwi has a full set. I don't have any. Yeah, Kiwi has them. Yeah. I don't have any. I don't, no. Were we even given one at the time? Because I should have one. No, I don't think we were given them. No. But like they're incredibly ugly. Like, <laughs> yes. They're hilarious. We actually remember getting them. We were really like, super excited about getting these dolls and we had to do. Did we have lots of photos of our face and stuff like that trying to get the recognition? And then when they came back, it was like, they were just scary. Who on earth is that? Like, I mean, what? <laughs> Hilarious looking. Quite cool, though. Still quite cool to have a doll made of you. Like, that is quite cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so few people get a doll made of themselves. Exactly. I know. It's so weird that that was a thing, though, isn't it? What do you think about that now? Getting dolls made of you. Oh, actually, tell me about the time you met um, President Obama, because The Wire was his favourite show, wasn't it? Did he fanboy you? He did fanboy me. It was it was in the middle of filming Red Tails, and we were in Prague. And I guess we had a, like a day off, and some of the cast and the director, Anthony Hemingway, were like, let's go, uh, Obama's speaking. And my daughter is in town, came to visit me, and she's little. And I put her on my shoulders, and we're walking up, and we're... Obama's giving a speech and we're standing on the corner with the rest of the crowd and we're just looking. And, you know, when my daughter was at that age where, you know, I'm not really a celebrity unless I was on, you know, SpongeBob or I was on, <laughs> you know, you know, I'm on a kid's show. I'm on Buffy. I'm not on Buffy. I'm not, I'm nobody. <laughs> but that, at that time, Obama's giving his speech and he, you know, looking at the crowd, great speaker. He's looking and he sees me, and I got my daughter on my shoulders, and he's like, hey there, Bubbles. What's up, man? Love your work. And I was just like this. Thank you, my man. My daughter flipped out. My daughter's farming flipped out. All the other actors. You know, I got Terrence Howard. I got Cuba Gooden Jr. I got all the other actors. Like, the fuck? <laughs> Fucking Bubbles? That's, that is. I'm like, yeah, hey, man, you know, the wife for life, baby. Wife for life. I'll finish up with the lovely Jerry Springer. As I say, I had no idea this would be Jerry's last broadcast interview before he sadly passed, but I'm honoured that it was filled with lots of laughs, humility and showed the real Jerry, separate to the reputation of the show he just happened to host. His final words are sad in retrospect, but his sign-off was just perfect. But before that, I want to say thanks so much again for tuning in this season. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. To all the amazing people who support the show, I'm hugely grateful that you share it on social media and part with your hard-earned cash to help keep the podcast going. If you'd like to help too, just go to celebritycatchup.com support. You can also leave a five-star rating or review on your podcast platform of choice because people are more likely to listen if someone else says it's worth it. And do follow the pod on social media. Just search for Celebrity Catch Up and you'll find me. And of course, a massive thank you to all my fantastic guests this season for generously giving me their time. I'll be back with season six of Celebrity Catch Up very soon. So if you haven't already, hit that follow or subscribe button now. It's totally free. So you'll be the first to know when it comes out. And in the meantime, why not go back and listen to some of the episodes you may have missed? Until next time, thanks for listening. And here's Jerry. I know you're a big Elvis fan and you do a mean Elvis impersonation, but would you mind sharing the rather unfortunate incident you had while doing a commentary on the King's birthday? Oh, this was January 8th, 1983, which is Elvis's birthday. And I know it was 1983 because I had just started doing the news. And when I first started doing the news, I was just doing every newscast a commentary. And 
since that was Elvis's birthday, I thought, well, how about a nice commentary about him? Now, back then, anchors, you know, look straight at the camera, but when they look straight into the lens, and it's not only back then, it's now too, you don't see just the lens. What you see is your script being scrolled down uh, as you're talking. Teleprompter. Yeah, the teleprompter. Now it's all computerized. But back then, what you had in the back of the studio was a conveyor belt like you see in a grocery store. And facing down on the conveyor belt is a camera. So you type out your script, you know, various pages, a number of pages. And so an intern would take that page, put it on the conveyor belt, and your script would sail by and scroll down. And so I would see my words that I wrote. Well, on this particular night, she got the pages out of order and then panicked and put in another page and it was upside down. (laughs) Well, it's one thing if there's no script, there's nothing on the screen, but you're just talking to a lens and then you're just talking because you're thinking about what you're saying like you do in a normal conversation. But if you're reading a script and suddenly in mid-sentence it goes away, you're saying, oh my God, what was the next word? What did I? And I froze. I mumbled stuff. And they have a video of this still. It was like, you know, when Elvis was young, he, he, he was young. And people really like young people. Elvis, is, it was, <laughs> it should have been the end of my television career. It was a disaster. And finally, after what seemed like, well, it was at least 30 seconds of mumbling. And on the sides, you could hear the co-anchor, the weather guy, and the sports guy laughing hysterically. And our weather guy, uh, Pat Berry, rest in peace, you know, he was going, uh, 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 uh. <laughs> I mean, he was even laughing loud, guffawing. And finally, I just stopped in the middle and I turned to Norma, who was also laughing. I said, Norma? And suddenly the camera goes to her and she doesn't know. Oh, it was brutal. It was one of those, uh, you know, every once in a while they have those tapes of uh, blunders, goofer. Uh, um, bloopers. Bloopers. Uh, yeah, and it was a blooper show. It made them all. Yeah. What happened to the intern? Was she sacked? <laughs> no, she probably runs the station now. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I felt so badly for her. I mean, can you imagine? That can't happen anymore. Now it's all computerized. Unless it's like um, that scene in Anchorman where somebody just put a question mark at the end and uh, Wilfred says, I'm Ron Burgundy. It's like, who put a question mark <laughs> yeah, in, yeah. in the script? That's right. Oh, no. <laughs> That was a great scene. Oh, Jerry, it's been a joy to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time. You are so nice. Thanks for having me. Enjoy your semi-retirement. <laughs> I certainly will. And I'd love to be back to talk to you again sometime. And remember always, take care of yourself and each other.